Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we're going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we're going to kick things off with a look at which industries the coronavirus is hurting and how it's impacting the supply chain. Plus, Berkshire Hathaway and Carl Icahn, they duke it out for Occidental Petroleum. But we want to start on the coronavirus, and we've done some work here at BI that's really going to take a look at under the surface at what's happening with the virus and what investors really need to watch and how to make money. For more, we want to bring in David Dwyer. He's a global director of research for Bloomberg and intelligence and you guys did a themed basket right what is, what is that what happened so a theme we've do, we have done a number of theme baskets over the past several quarters on various important topics uh, this is the first time we've done a short-term theme basket which is a coronavirus although we don't know if yet if it's short term uh, but we've done things such as uh, carbon neutral uh, 5G, the China trade war, the coronavirus. Okay, so these are names, these are companies that presumably are being impacted one way or the other by the coronavirus. How do you get into that theme basket? So we have a process where we actually uh, do a quantitative search of all of the terminology that's been used and all of the uh, things that people, have, companies have talked about. And we identify hundreds of companies that have extensively talked about the coronavirus. And then we go to each one of the 300-plus analysts in Bloomberg Intelligence and ask them to select who they think is most impacted. And we try to get a nice geographic and sector representation. And this particular theme basket has 77 names across the world. Well, that sounds like a lot of work. Um, so <laughs> so what made it in? What, what types of companies? You know, it, it was interesting. It... it uh, it was, as you would expect, it was about half of the names were in Asia, about a third in Europe, and less in North America, uh, again, as you'd expect. And then it's across all sorts of in different industries. Half the names were consumer or consumer-related, which would include things like travel, uh, financials, real estate, insurance were, were highly represented, technology. And we try to break it down between companies that are more impacted from the demand side versus the supply side. So both are important. And we also actually, interestingly, look at companies that are positively impacted. Believe it or not, there's some companies that are positively impacted by the coronavirus. Hmm. How has the index or the theme basket overall kind of performed since you guys have been tracking it? Uh, surprisingly, with all of the news, uh, it's it's traded a little differently than you would have thought. It, it got hit very hard in January, down about 9% uh, during January. Uh, but since in February, despite all of the news, uh, it's actually recovered about mm. a third or half of uh, half of that decline. So people are optimistic that it's going to get better. Yeah. Are these give us some of the names that are kind of maybe surprised you a little bit or some of the, like I would think Apple, obviously, given 20 percent of their sales are in China and they make all the stuff there. But what are some other names? Yeah. I mean, obviously, technology supply chain is very, very important. Um, Apple, Samsung would uh, would would clearly fit that. But then, you know, as I mentioned, consumer 
from so many different vantage points is really affected, uh, both on the demand side and the supply side. Nike, Adidas, uh, both affected by the supply side. You know, luxury goods uh, manufacturers, whether it's uh, Swatch, Tapestry, Tapestry owns Coach, Burberry's. uh, You know, these are names that are really affected by the demand side. Uh, But then you go into the travel side, and uh, obviously we're seeing all of the news on uh, the... um, uh, the cruise ships that are quarantined, oh and so yeah. Carnival Just reason Royal not to take a cruise. Totally with you on that. <laughs> Carnival and Royal Caribbean are, are in the in the list, and then of course airlines, you know, Cathay, Singapore, Air China are, are there as well. So there's a lot of different types of names. Can you walk me through the distinction between those that are international, like the ones we just talked about, versus are there domestic facing stocks, like uh, domestic consumer Chinese stocks, for example? Well, so one of the areas that I would point that out is in the casino area, which has been hit very hard. So you can have a domestic impact, uh, like a Win or an MGM or a Sands. Uh, you, you can have a domestic, depending on whether you're talking about China domestic or U.S., but it, it has both. So you have to really look at the biggest impact, which is the impact on foot traffic in, in Macau. But there's also issues of people traveling from China and some of the big gamblers from China who are playing uh, high-stakes games like Baccarat is affecting their Las Vegas business. So it can happen happen mm. both ways. So if you so you put these uh, theme baskets together, again, 77 names, I guess, in this one, do you take some out? Do you add some in or does it stay kind of a fixed basket? So what we try to do is every quarter we will go back and rebalance the basket and we will take input from our analysts to say, remember, at the end of the day, we quantitatively searched these names out, but then had our analysts pick up from a much larger group on which companies they thought were going to be most impacted, more from a quality, from their own personal uh, impressions. Uh, and so every quarter we go back in and check uh, with our analysts to see if they bring names in or, or take them out. Take a look at the commodities. Commodities yeah. are down, you know, if you look at the hard metals, double digits. The soft commodities are down mid-single digits, definitely reflecting slower GDP growth. What are economists, Dave, saying about GDP growth associated with coronavirus? Uh, I mean, the economists are, I think, a little bit – it depends. We, we have a number of economists right. in different parts of the world, and so you'll get you know, slightly different opinions. But they're just starting to get to the point of understanding the amount of uh, the GDP hit, it, and, and they're starting to you know, cut their numbers for GDP growth uh, for the next couple of quarters. Yeah, but I also wonder, too, if we're going to see on earnings, you know, is this going to become like the weather? Yes. for retailers, as in like, oh, but I have exposure to China, therefore dot, 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 and like how to factor that into something that maybe they were already in a slowing business. Maybe they were going to experience troubles anyway. There is that case, but in the case of the coronavirus, uh, you know, as the numbers climb and as the quarantines continue to be in place, you know, it could become more and more troubling. I mean, mm-hmm. the, 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 you know, Bloomberg News has had a number of stories about the coronavirus in the last couple of days that have been pretty interesting. You know, I just saw one about the number of businesses that are, are struggling to meet payroll in China. Yeah, and, and not yeah, not paying all the money, not paying money at all, etc. Right. I think there's, you know, the hope is that the coronavirus winds down and it proves not to be a problem. But if it continues for another couple of quarters, there's some very serious challenges that China and the worldwide economy have. And, and I think people may underestimate the potential impact of what's going on. And they may, it may be much worse than just looking at the weather from month to month. Totally fair. All right. Really great conversation. I super appreciate it. A Bloomberg Intelligence Global Director of Research, David Dwyer. Coming up on the program, a close-up look at how the coronavirus is impacting the supply chain, especially for chips and what it means for the companies involved. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies on 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 13 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. 
This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index is up 7% year-to-date and up 47% over the trailing 12 months. What's the bull case for semiconductors in a scenario where there's a coronavirus maybe negatively impacting growth going forward? To get the answers to that, we welcome Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst Anand Srinivasan on the chip industry. So, Anand, again, I was kind of surprised to see the positive performance coming out of the chip makers when I would think this coronavirus would be creating some supply, demand uh, uh, difficulties? Look, that's a great question. I mean, if we take a step back and X out the coronavirus and you look at 2020 as a whole, we were actually positively predisposed to um, uh, how the chip industry's revenues would play out for the year. We expected a second half skew for sure, but you look at 5G, um, handsets selling through more expensive handsets, you had potential cloud spending lingering, you had potentially an enterprise IT spending picking up, PCs are not falling off a cliff. So you can point to an auto SAR from minus 8% last year, we're going to a flat this year. All positive conditions uh, for uh, a good 2020 for semiconductors. And valuation wasn't extreme, right? Even memory could have found balance uh, between supply and demand by 3Q. Enter coronavirus. Obviously, it 1Q it's, is, is thrown for, for a toss. Um, and 1Q is a seasonally weak quarter. We expect very little out of 1Q from our demand and supply perspective. And the Lunar New Year came early this year. So creates sort of a, a, a dampening of demand early in the quarter. So 1Q is out. How does this play in 2Q is the all-important question. And quite frankly, we don't know the answers. So how 2Q, so when companies report 1Q in mid-April, right, they'll give you a sense of what inventory is at the end of the quarter, which should be mixed based on loss of uh, supply, loss of production in 1Q. But again, there's also going to be a weak demand for 1Q. But what is guidance for 2Q? So it's a both a supply and demand shock. Right. So how do you model that? Like, you're right, we have to wait till mid-April to see that. But what happens first? Like a demand catch-up or a supply catch-up? Or how does that work? Yeah, we think that demand potentially comes back first. Um, because if you look at the average chip, it takes anywhere between 5 to 16 weeks to make. And on Is top that, of that, takes, to make a chip takes how many? Five to sixteen weeks. Really? Yeah, it's not made overnight. Yeah, why not? It's a little so complicated. Why don't you just stamp it and <laughs> that's <laughs> right. It's a little complicated. Three D print that. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, so it's <laughs> like uh huh. Let's move on. <laughs> so so depending on how how constrained the supply was and how bad the demand is and how much inventory we had in the channel and with the semiconductors, you can satiate one Q demand. Right. But 2Q, you're not going to be able to satiate potentially all of it. And how you're picking up production in the latter part of 1Q, potentially the early part of 2Q, is it at 40 percent factory utilization? Is it at 70 percent? Is it at 90 percent? Those are all big um, uh, factors, driving factors into what 2Q supply looks like. And then if you have demand coming back and if demand is strong, particularly given the fact that we haven't had um, a significant portion of uh, Chinese population go out and buy stuff, uh, particularly consumer electronics, you could have uh, price uptakes, you could have shortages, you could have some weird funky things between supply and demand in 2Q. But by the time 3Q rolls around, 
this should be done and dusted. Mm. Okay. Right? That's an all-important quarter. You muck with 3Q, the year's gone. Okay. All right. right. So give us a sense of the supply chain in the chip world. I didn't know how long it takes to make a chip, so I, now I really need some education here. And how does China fit into that supply chain? So that's a great question. China actually doesn't have a whole lot of chip manufacturing capacity when we think of advanced logic chips. LED chips, um, some memory, uh, and assembly of the actual product, that's all China. Right. So it, it, the interesting part of it is because the entire supply chain is affected potentially in China and in a couple of other places in um, uh, in the uh, in East Asia, one component shortage is going to bring the supply chain to a halt. Right. I remember when um, the Fukushima nuclear accident occurred, there was a small six inch age old TI fab out of uh, Japan that got affected. As a result of that, uh, a significant portion of one con consumer electronics came to a grinding halt or slowed down pretty substantially, even though TI moved 80% of the capacity to a different factory. So you have these nuances, and I think that in the broader scheme of things, it doesn't matter which supply, which element is affected, whether it's assembly, whether it is memory, whether it is a specific part that could be inconsequential from a value perspective but it is highly necessary in the uh, in building a particular electronic good. So what's actually being priced in then to these stocks? Is it the uncertainty into Q2? Is it the recovery in Q3? I think that that's a great question, Alex. Right now, it seems like we are pricing in that this is not going to carry into all of even Q1, right? So if this turns okay, out yeah. to be a, 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 a sort of a wider spread phenomenon um, and affects uh, potentially more than just China, for example, um, and it affects demand as well as supply, then we have a bigger lingering problem uh, for 2020. If, on the other hand, this is a China-specific issue and we caught it, we contained it due to China's efforts, then we potentially have a stronger demand picture in 2Q through 4Q. So on what are some of the names, the big names that investors play when they have a call on chip demand and supply? So, uh, you know, the the keen um, uh, uh, eyes will be on Intel, Qualcomm, and Apple. Uh, for That's for, a market cap there. I yeah, that. so mm -hmm. between these three companies, we want to look at both the inventory as well as inventory from 1Q calendar quarter 1Q and 2Q guidance. I think that will be telling. 1Q calendar, calendar 1Q, Apple's already guided down and taken guidance off the table. And all three names are conservative in their gu guidance and outlook. So we're going to take that into effect, and we're going to look at these three names. Um, secondary companies that we want to look at are NVIDIA uh, and AMD. Both product cycle stories, very strong, but there is a China focus there. Um, we're also looking at um, uh, consumer electronics goods, but we're also looking at um, auto players, uh, mm -hmm. Infineon, NXP, and TI, and ST Micro. Um, and there the picture is... Autos were pretty bad last year. Yep. We just want that to be not a headwind anymore. We don't care about the tailwind. We just wanted to go back to zero units, 0% 0 growth. Anand Srinivasan, thanks so much for joining us, Senior Technology Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. All right, coming up on the program, do you want to go up against Carl Icahn? Well, Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett decided, sure, why not, when they ramped up their stake in Occidental. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BI Go on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. It's 25 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg.
This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. We'll be here each and every week at this time tapping into our Bloomberg Intelligence analysts covering some 2,000 companies and 130 industries worldwide. Well, do you want to go up against Carl Icahn? I do not. You do not? Maybe Warren Buffett does? Maybe. Maybe. I think he, he wouldn't mind. <laughs> Maybe over Occidental. We will see. For more, we're pleased to welcome Bloomberg Intelligence analyst Matt Palazzola. Matt, talk to us a little bit about... we. We know that Warren Buffett, the 13F just came out. We we want to talk to you about what he's buying and selling. Let's start with Occidental here. He's upping his position, isn't he? We believe that it's uh, in anticipation of a potential proxy battle with Icon. Aha. Uh-huh. So walk us through that if we're not deep in the weeds in energy like I am. <laughs> sure. So last year, 2019, Occidental and Berkshire made a $10 billion preferred stock deal for Occidental's acquisition of Anadarko. In that deal, Buffett got about an 8% dividend and about 80 million warrants to buy uh, more shares. So Carl Icahn it, has a position in Occidental, and he was very critical of this deal. He thought that they could have done better on the open market. Uh, just recently, he sent a letter to the Occidental shareholders saying he thought that this was actually a defensive move, that Occidental was going to be taken over itself, and they did it just to avoid a takeover. So Berkshire has a, a vested uh, interest in the current management team because they had done such a big deal with them. Has All right, so has the Anadarko deal closed, or is it still pending? It's still pending. Okay, it's still pending. So the question is simply... Well, Oxy is, is uh, operating their wells right now. They are? Yeah, yeah. So oh, okay. Oxy's okay. operating their wells. They're already getting uh, their costs down uh, in terms of their wells. Uh, but they still have to prove, I think, more to shareholders that it actually worked. And it gotcha. was worth the money. Because, I mean, Buffett got a huge premium. He got a huge... He got a, a Buffett deal, like he got with uh, Goldman Sachs uh-huh. back in the day. So, all right. So, if you're Carl Icahn, you're saying just simply... There's a couple things I don't like about this. A, the cost of the financing, and B, what it means for the potential maybe sale of the company at some point? Yeah, he. I mean, he thought that the company was a more likely acquisition candidate and that this deal was just a, a bid on the price of oil, which hasn't really worked out. So, uh, you know, he's completely against everything that, that Berkshire's doing with them. Got it. Yeah, he definitely has been super aggressive uh, with Vicki Hall, the CEO. So what else is Berkshire kind of in? What are they out of? That kind of stuff. Yeah, so they didn't buy, they didn't make a huge splash this quarter in terms of buying new stocks, but they did buy Kroger, which is the largest traditional grocery operator in the country. It's kind of an on-brand buy for them because it's, uh, you know, kind of a Modi thing. The, you know, Except for Amazon buying Whole Foods, they had to buy Whole Foods to disrupt, right? So it, it's less apt to be disrupted by digital distribution uh, due to the perishable inventory. All right. So it's interesting. When I think about Warren Buffett, I think of, in Berkshire Hathaway, I think Warren Buffett. How much of the control and the selection of big investments has he given to some of his lieutenants now? Because that brings in this all succession issue, which has been on investors' minds for a long time. Right. So so we don't really know. You know, after the after the fact, sometimes he'll be asked who made this deal and he'll say, Oh, it was one of the investment deputies. He just promoted one of the investment deputies to the head of Geico, which was kind of a big uh, a big surprise for me and a lot more responsibility. Obviously, the insurance companies manage huge portfolios, so I think he'll have more of a say in things like that. So, you know, we don't, really don't exactly know, but I think more and more power is being ceded to mm. his top two lieutenants. So what did he wind up doing with Wells Fargo? Like, tough spot, clearly a turnaround, clearly trying to get its act together, but there's just so much bad news. Right. So he, they've owned Wells since the 90s. Um <laughs> You know, it, it's so better. So hard to sell. Exactly, yes. <laughs> right. So it's it's probably better for our our 
uh, financials. Uh, banks, I don't talk about the, the issues specifically at the company, but among their largest positions, it's been the one that they've sold the most of over the past two years. They've reduced the size of their position by 30%. So to me, that indicates some uh, loss of conviction. In addition, with banks, once you get near that 10% ownership, there's more regulatory scrutiny. So they try to stay away from that. So I'm not surprised they're, they're bumping on that with Bank of America. Now, they still own, I think, over 8% of Wells uh, anyway, but definitely among the top uh, owned shares, it's been the one they sold the most of. So, Matt, when I'm looking at Berkshire Hathaway, the B shares, um, you know, for the trailing 12 months, up about 11.5% trailing the S&P. What's kind of the investment pros and cons with Berkshire right here? It's hard for Berkshire to get away from this proxy of the economy. So, our view is they're best-in-class businesses, they're a step above, but I think it's really hard for them to break out of they should just perform in line with the market. And our favorite, Apple. Yeah, so it, it's funny, you know, we talk about 500 million here, 500 million there. Just the move in Apple shares in the fourth quarter was over a $15 billion uh, addition to their portfolio. Wow. So, huh. you know, it's it's <laughs> just massive condition. compared to everything else for them. Um, you know, with the pre-announcement, the move in the stock that day took $1.5 billion off, and it subsequently rebounded. But, you know, he loves Apple. I think he'd buy the whole company if he could. And we'll leave it there. All right, thanks so much, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Matt Palazzoa. Coming up on the program, the latest twists and turns in European financial regulations known as MIFID II, plus whether the lithium market can get energized anytime soon. MIFID II, for real? Yes. Yeah, okay. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BIGO on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 39 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, for those in the asset management business and those in the brokerage business that provide investment research products, a UK regulation called MIFID II has been a huge disruption. To get the latest, uh, we welcome Sarah Jane Mahmood from Bloomberg Intelligence in London. So, Sarah Jane, just start us off and just give us a sense of what is MIFID II and what is it designed to do? So basically, uh, e the EU regulation MIFID II came into force just over a couple of years ago now, and it completely changed market structure within the EU. Now, one very tiny rule in the MIFID II legislation had an incredibly big impact on the investment research industry, and basically, for the first time ever, required the separation of payments for investment research from dealing commissions across the whole of the EU. Um, the UK already had kind of similar rules in place beforehand, um, but this EU rule just solidified those and, and made it a little bit stricter. So now the rule's been in force for over two years. The European Commission is due to undergo a formal scheduled review of every single provision within it this year. And it just so happens that on Monday it launched a consultation paper of about 94 pages and 10 of those were devoted to the investment research rule and um, looking at how to right the wrongs, basically undo the unintended consequences. Now overwhelmingly the consultation paper focuses on how to increase research coverage of small and medium-sized companies, which has been in decline in terms of quality and quantity since MIFID II went live. And this is actually very important to the French and to the German authorities um, because they have many more small cap companies than 
we have over here in the UK. And there has been seen to be a detrimental impact on their stock coverage and as a result of that, their liquidity and also IPO activity as well. Yeah, so Sarah Jane, this is interesting because I, I think, you know, there was MIFID II is designed to really make it more transparent, the cost of investment research and, and what uh, investors of mutual funds, for example, are, are actually paying. But the net result is it's put a, a lot of downward pressure on the uh, uh, stock brokerage community, the Merrill Lynch's of the world the, uh, and, you know, the Morgan Stanley's of the world. So they're actually spending less on investment research. Is that correct? Yes, research budgets, according to the French regulator Autorité de Marché Financier, have reduced 20% in the past year, and they're expected to remain around that number or decline further this year. And as a result of, of the rule, um, because asset managers are now putting a price on research, they're having to value it. They're more closely looking, scrutinizing the quality of the research as well. So it might be that they just take research from a few select brokers or independent research providers. There's been a lot of movement in the research market, a lot of um, Attribution to the declining quality put down to juniorization in the industry, uh, more analysts covering, sorry, fewer analysts covering more stocks as well. I think there was an 11% rise in the average analyst stock coverage between 2018 and 2019. And this is um, just causing a lot of uncertainty in the research industry. And the fact that there's another consultation out to further make changes to the MIFID II rule with Brexit going on as well. It's very difficult to see at the moment exactly how you can take a step back and right the wrongs of the rule when so much has changed due to this transformative rule. Sarah Jane, thanks so much. We really appreciate your thoughts here. Sarah Jane uh, Mahmood uh, from Bloomberg Intelligence in London is giving us latest thoughts on MIFID II and the whole research business uh, on Wall Street. And now I want to turn to one of my favorite topics, that is energy slash commodities. A Bloomberg Intelligence analyst, Chris Perella, uh, joins us now. Now, Chris, this is a total shameless plug because I have an EV special uh, running ah, all weekend. Perfect. It is EV <laughs> on the brink of change. And part of that story is lithium and the metals that go into it. What's the juice behind lithium in the EV market? So as EVs migrate to higher range batteries, you're going to see lithium play a larger role in the battery. There's going to be an increased demand for lithium over time. Uh, some of the metals are going to be thrifted out. Cobalt's going to be de-emphasized in those higher range batteries. But the one constant is greater range in the batteries, more need for lithium. And that's going to be a key market driver for the, for the lithium market. Okay. So when I think commodities, I, I want to get a real firm grasp on supply and demand and kind of what's driving prices. So give us a sense of what's been happening in the lithium market over the last year or so. Sure. Two things. In 2019, uh, supply and demand both saw major changes. In the supply side of the equation, Australian miners uh, brought on significant capacity and ran at a very high rate in 2019. So the market was well supplied with lithium. Some of those suppliers overshot their targets, and, and so there's, there's plenty of lithium in the market in the second half of 2019. On the demand side, China cut its subsidies for electric vehicles uh, on July 1, for all intents and purposes, and we saw a decline in demand for EVs in China in the second half of the year. So increased supply coupled with lower demand, and the price of lithium has been falling, falling steadily over the last nine months or so, and it's continued into the new year as well. 
So the way I see it is it that is like good and bad depending on where you sit. So on the one hand, if you're making EVs, it's awesome because your battery costs will come down. That's like key for consumers to buy them. Now, if you're a miner and you're looking at this and you see this long-term demand picture, but you see low prices, but you have to invest now to get the lithium in like three to five years, depending on how you're doing it, what do you do? Well, so what we've seen so far from the, the leading players in the, the industry, Albemarle, SQM, Livent, uh, as well as some of the Chinese players, Taliesin, um, well, Chunky, Taliesin is their JV, they've slowed their capacity expansion plans. So they've rolled out, uh, and they've all brought on new capacity. Some of it came on online in 2019. Some of it's coming on in 2020. But beyond that, there's a dearth of new supply coming online. And then several years out, as the long-term investments start to come into play, we'll see more supply enter the market. But So the medium term is, is seeing a pause in investment in, in lithium, and the uh, producers have paced their capacity expansions and throttled back. So whereas is, you know, several billion dollars was going to be spent over the next, uh, next couple of years, that number has come down uh, significantly as everyone waits for the demand to catch up with the supply that's been built out. So as I think about the demand side of the equation, what percentage of lithium demand is for electric vehicles? Is that the, is that the call I have to have right from a demand side? So from the demand side, it's about a third of global lithium uh, consumption that's going into electric vehicles and then maybe another 9 10% that's going to go into trucks and buses and uh, public transportation. The real growth driver is that electric vehicle component. That one-third is expected to grow 20% annually for the next 7 to 10 years. And so that growth is is where you're going to see the uptake for the lithium that's coming out of the ground. Electric vehicles is the key growth driver, and, and that's going to be driving the story over the next several years. Here's what I think is a really interesting conversation that happens when you get into EVs. is like, are they actually cleaner? So like, yes, they don't have an internal combustion engine. They don't use gasoline. But the way that you get the lithium and the way that you get the nickel and the cobalt and all that – that can get dirty. Like, can you walk me through what that conversation is like? So there are, are two ways to do it. Uh, one way is to recover it from brines. And Chile in particular has mineral-rich brines for lithium. They use solar evaporation to produce uh, the lithium and concentrate it out of the brine. So from an energy perspective, very clean but it uses a lot of water, and there's concerns in the Atacama Desert in Chile over the water usage from Albemarle and SQM, which are the key producers there. So that's one concern. The other process is from uh, hard rock, more traditional mining. That takes place primarily in Australia, and that's similar to other mining processes, more common mineral mining processes. A lot of a lot of uh, digging up of the earth uh, can breaking down the rock, purifying the mineral, that tends to be a more carbon-intensive footprint. It tends to be a higher-cost production method as well. And so you're balancing some of the upfront costs with extracting the lithium from the ground, not to mention the cobalt and the the nickel that we're going to need as well, for a, a life cycle of a lower carbon life cycle on the actual battery use. So it's, it's a complicated uh, equation as to uh, 
what's better for the environment. And uh, it's very important, and you raise a great question as to how to properly assess the the environmental impact of these batteries. So cool. I was so close to going yes. to a, <laughs> He mocks me. I was so close to going to a brine field a few years ago. Well, Chris Perella, thanks very much. That's this week edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. It's 57 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all. All of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.